0: Chapter seventeen of the harbor. This Liebervox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. The harbor by Ernest Poole. Chapter seventeen. I had often told Eleanor of Joe. She had asked me about him many times. It's queer, she had said, what a hold he must have had on you. I feel sure he's just the kind of person I wouldn't like and who wouldn't like me. I don't think he's really your kind either, and yet he has a hold on you still. Yes, he has, I can feel he has.' "'And tonight, when I told her that I had been with him—' "'What did he want of you?' she asked. "'He wants me to drop everything,' I answered, and I tried to give her some idea of what he had said. But as I talked the thought came suddenly into my mind—' that here at last was the very time to settle my life one way or the other, to ask her if she would be my wife. I grew excited and confused, my voice sounding unnatural to my ears, and as I talked on about Joe, my heart pounding, I could barely keep the thoughts in line. "'And I don't want what he wants,' I entered desperately. "'That nor anything like it. I just want what I've been getting.' just this kind of work and life, and I want you, for life I mean, if you can ever feel like that." Eleanor said nothing. In an instant the world and everything in it had narrowed to the two of us. The intensity was unbearable. I rose abruptly and turned away. I felt suddenly far out of my depth. Confusedly and furiously I felt that I had bungled things that here was something in life so strange I could do nothing with it. What a young fool I was to have thought she could ever care for a fellow like me! I felt she must be smiling. Despairingly I turned to see. And Eleanor was smiling. In a way that steadied me in a flash, for her smile was so plainly a quick, strong effort to steady herself. I'm glad you want me like that she said in a voice that did not sound like hers. "'I don't believe in hiding things. I'm... very happy.' She looked down at her hands in her lap and they slowly locked together. "'But of course it means our whole lives, you see, and we mustn't hurry or make a mistake. Now that we know this much we can talk about it quite openly, about each other and what we want.' what kinds of lives, what we believe in, whether we'd be best for each other. It's what we ought to talk about, a good many times, it may be weeks.' "'All right,' I agreed. I was utterly changed. At her first words I had felt a deep rush of relief, and seeing her tremendous pluck and the effort she was making, I pitied, worshipped, and loved her all in the same moment and as we talked on for a few minutes more in that grave and unnaturally sensible way about the pros and cons of it all, these feelings within me mounted so swiftly that all at once I again broke off. "'I don't believe there's any use in this,' I declared. "'It's perfectly idiotic.' "'Of course it is,' she promptly agreed. And then, after a rigid instant when each of us looked at the other as though asking, "'Quick, what are we going to do?' She burst out laughing excitedly. So did I, and that carried her into my arms, and I remember nothing, until after a while she asked me to go, because she wanted to be by herself, and I noticed how bright and wet were her eyes. I saw them still in the darkness down along the river front, where I walked for half the rest of the night, stopping to draw a deep breath of the sea and laugh excitedly and go on. Life changed rapidly after that night. I grew so absorbed in Eleanor and in all that was waiting just ahead that it was hard not to shut out everything else, most of all impersonal things. It was hard to write, and for days I wrote nothing. I remember only intimate talks. Everyone I talked to seemed to be deeply personal. I told my father about it the next evening before supper. I found him in his old chair in the study, buried deep in his paper. "'Say, Dad, would you mind coming up to your room?' He smote his paper to one side. "'What the devil,' he asked, "'do I want to come up to my room for?' "'I've—the fact is I've something you ought to know.' I could hear Sue in the other room. "'All right, my boy,' he said nervously. As he followed me he kept clearing his throat. Sue must have guessed and prepared him. In his room he fussed about, grunted hard over getting off his shoes and finding his slippers, then lay back on his sofa with his hands behind his head and uttered an explosive sigh. "'All right, son, now fire ahead,' he said jocosely. I loved him at that moment. "'You know Eleanor Dillon,' I began. She turned you down. "'No, she took me. The devil, you say!' He sat bolt upright staring. Well, my boy, I'm very glad, he said thickly. His eyes were moist. I'm glad, glad. She's a fine girl. Strong character, strong. I wish your poor mother were alive. She'd be happy. This girl will make a good wife. You must bring her right here to live with us. And so he talked on, his voice trembling. Then out of his confusion rose the money question. And at once his mind grew clear and to my surprise he urged me to lose no time in looking around for some good steady position in a magazine office, my writing I could do at night. "'It's so uncertain at best,' he said. "'It's nothing you can count on, and you've got to think of a wife and children. Her father has no money saved.' I found he'd been looking Dylan up, and this jarred on me horribly, but still worse was his lack of faith in my writing.' I was making four hundred dollars a month, and it was a most unpleasant jolt to have it taken so lightly. I went down to Sue. As I came into the living room she met me suddenly at the door. In a moment her arms were about my neck, and she was saying softly, I know what it is, dear, and I'm glad, I'm awfully glad. If I've been horrid about it ever, please forgive me. I'm sure now it's just the life you want. And that evening while dad slept in his chair, Sue and I had a long affectionate talk. We drew closer than we had been for months. She was eager to hear everything. She wanted to know all our plans. When I tried at last to turn our talk to herself and our affairs at home, at first she would not hear to it. My dear boy, she said affectionately you've had these worries long enough. You're to run along now and be happy, and leave this house to Dad and me.' I slipped my arm around her. "'Look here, sis, let's see this right. You can't run here on what Dad earns, and if you try to work yourself you'll only hurt him terribly. My idea is to help as before, without letting him know that I'm doing it. Make him think you've cut expenses. It took a long time to get her consent. The next night I went to Eleanor's father. He received me quietly and with a deep intensity under that steady smile of his, which reminded me so much of hers. He spoke of all she had meant to him and of her brave search for a big, happy life. He told how he had watched her with me slowly, making up her mind. It took a long time, but it's made up now, he said and now that it is, she's the kind that will go through anything for you that can ever come up in your life. He looked at me squarely, still smiling a little, frankly letting his new affection come into his eyes. I wish I knew all that's going to happen, he added, almost sadly. I hope you'll get used to telling me things, talking things over, anything, no matter what, where I can be of the slightest help. Then he, too, spoke of money. He meant to keep up her allowance, he said, and he had insured his life for her. Again, as with my father, I felt that disturbing lack of faith in my work. I spoke of it to Eleanor, and she looked at me indignantly. You must never think of it like that, she said. I won't have you writing for money. Dad has never worked that way, and you're not to do it on any account, least of all on account of me. Whatever you make we'll live on, and that's all there is to be said, except that we'll live splendidly," she added, very gaily, and we won't spend the finest part of our lives saving up for rainy days. We'll take care of the rain when it rains, and we'll have some wonderful times while we can. We decided at once on a trip abroad as soon as I had finished my work, and I remember writing hard. In reading it aloud to her and rewriting over and over again, for Eleanor could be severe. But I remember, too, more trips in her boat to gather the last odds and ends. I remember how the big harbor took on a new glory to our eyes, mingled with all the deep personal joys and small troubles and crises we went through, the puzzles and the questionings and the glad discoveries that made up the swift growth of our love and though I never once thought of Joe Kramer, he had prophesied all right. I belonged wholly now to Dylan's world, a world of clean, vigorous order that seemed to welcome me the more as I wrote in praise of its power, and happy over my success and in love and starting life anew with all the signs so bright, how could I have any doubts of my harbor? We were married very quietly late one April afternoon it rained i remember all that day but the next was bright and clear for our sailing in our small stateroom on the ship we found a note from the company a large engraved impressive affair presenting their best wishes and asking us to accept for the voyage one of their most luxurious cabins this is what comes said Eleanor gaily of being the wife of a writer or the daughter i said softly of a very wonderful engineer. You darling boy!" We moved up to a large sunny cabin. I remember her swiftly reading the telegrams and letters there as though to get them all out of the way. I remember her unpacking and taking possession of our first home. "'We're married, aren't we?' said a voice. There was only one more good-bye to be said. On the deck as we went out of the harbor Eleanor stood by the rail. I felt her hand close tight on mine, and I saw her eyes glisten a little with tears. What a splendid place it has been, she said. End of chapter seventeen. Recording by Tom Weiss.